Hello, this is Joe and TJ, and we are the Schoolhouse 302, and we want to welcome you back to Focus Ed for Season 4. We are truly excited. Focus Ed is a collaborative project with the University of Delaware, the Delaware Department of Education, and the two of us, Joe and TJ, at the Schoolhouse 302. TJ, tell our audience a bit more about Focus Ed. Absolutely. Focus Ed is a podcast that gets recorded with a live audience. We do 14 episodes every season. We're in season four, but you can find season one, two, and three on our site at theschoolhouse302.com. It's a professional development experience for anyone who wants to attend, and then we blast it out from our site. We interview great leaders, authors of popular books, and experts in teaching, learning, and leading so that you can lead better and grow faster in your school or district. Thank you for listening to Focus Ed, and we hope you'll join us live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Focus Ed, where we invite expert guests to join us. And we are super excited to have experts with us tonight, Nathan Maynard and Luke Roberts. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So we are focused on an incredibly important topic that a lot of schools are challenged with in this day and age, restorative justice, school discipline, not only discussing it, but getting it right, and the need for leadership in these very important areas. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Nathan and Luke? Sure thing, Joe. Thanks for that. Nathan Maynard is a renowned global leader in discipline and restorative practices. He has over 15 years experience as a facilitator of the work throughout juvenile justice and educational settings. He co-authored the Washington Post bestseller, Hacking School Discipline, which is now an international bestseller in 21 countries. He was awarded as Youth Worker of the Year in Indiana. Nathan also is the co-founder of High Five, an international restorative practices training group, and the first restorative behavior support software system for schools. Nathan studied behavioral neuroscience at Purdue University. He's passionate about ending the school-to-prison pipeline crisis and closing the opportunity gap through implementing cutting-edge, trauma-informed, and belonging-focused discipline practices. Dr. Luke Roberts first started as an assistant researcher in the early 2000s, interviewing over 200 children and young people on their experience of restorative practices. He then went to become a restorative practitioner working with children at risk of suspension, including those involved in gang violence and weapon carrying in London. This work also included multi-agency partnerships with youth workers, police, and social services, as well as parents. His passion for restorative practices has helped in addressing issues of bullying, cyberbullying, and older peer coercion. His work was noticed by the Metropolitan Police, and he was asked to help police officers become more empathetic to young people. In the 2010s, he then went on to chair the first Young People Conference in City Hall, exploring the risks of cyberbullying and online harm, which was led by young people themselves. This work became an all-party parliamentary group with young people's voices at the center to influence politicians. He was asked to address youth violence in the prison service and work with the top four prisons of concern in 2015 by using restorative practices. This work left a lasting impression on him, and he developed a range 
in innovative models to support young people in custody and on release. This is where their work combines. Luke joined High Five with Nathan in 2002 or 2022, where he brings his passion of championing young people's voices and experiences with the power of the power to change the system. He's the chief innovation officer, and he finds engaging and exciting ways to equip children with conflict resolution skills as well as future developments for High Five. Okay, Nathan and Luke, impressive bios. We're going to jump right in. I want to start with Nathan and then ask Joe to get to Luke here. I think everyone listening knows what we mean when we say restorative practices, but can you give us your definition so that we can be super clear as we start this conversation? I think restorative practices is a relational based approach where we work on really setting the stage for social capital with our relationships. Social capital is the way that we really form a bond with another person, and we can utilize that in times where we're trying to build community, as well as times where mistakes happen. A lot of times we hear about discipline and we think about a connotation around the word discipline, right? We think like punishment or teaching or this. We talk a lot about discipline as a teaching tool. The root word of discipline is discerna. It's a Latin word, which means disciple, which means to learn and to teach. So when we're thinking about restorative practices and mistakes happen, things take place, we're thinking about teaching social emotional learning skills. If there's a deficit, there's a gap, and looking at repairing harm when harm takes place. And what does that look like to repair that and fix things with the community and other stakeholders around? That's impressive. Nathan, thank you. And I, I want to just double down on the relational based of this, that that's what comes through this approach. Um, Luke, if you would, could you dive into what that looks like from your experience? How do we build those bonds with students to get away more from the transactional methods of discipline into that relational social capital process that Nathan just described? Sure. So I think for me, process is crucial. So there's like, there's a real risk that everything becomes restorative. And if everything becomes restorative, then nothing is restorative. And so it's really about making sure that when we're thinking about the processes we use, are they either restoring relationships to what they were before? Or are we building new ones to create a better relationship than what was there previously. So at the heart of it for me, it's around looking at, well, what are the techniques, skills and processes that combine to achieve a particular type of resolution? And often part of that resolution may be some kind of healing of the relationship as well. And that's where you really need leaders to demonstrate an empathetic lead so that teachers and students can all learn together. So these practices are different than what we typically see in codes of conduct and I would say punishment and reward systems in schools. Um, can you guys tell us how you challenge those old practices and what do you say to some leaders who are listening who say, yeah, but when kids do bad things, what they need is to be punished. Otherwise, they won't turn their behaviors around. Even correctional institutions and some of the most difficult players you've come up against. What do you say to folks who are still in a traditional mindset? We'll start with Nathan. Yeah. 
So, you know, I, I think a lot of times we think of the, you know, what's the punishment someone deserves after wrongdoing takes place. I think we need to move that into what's the consequence of the situation. Again, consequence also has a lot of connotations, but there has to be consequences that are skill like tiered and scaffold when situations happen. So what is those actual consequences are? What's the skill that we're teaching? What does it look like to really move that in a different lens? I think the old system and changing behaviors is really reliant upon extrinsic motivation. That's sort of, you know, if we want something to happen, we give it a reward or we give it a punishment. But what we start to see is kids sometimes aren't responding to punishments. They don't respond to fear-based systems anymore. Kids aren't as afraid as they used to be over the adults in their life in that situation. I blame sometimes social media and, and media in different ways that you sort of disconnect from the empathy of another person in a human. So if we try to make a student afraid of us to change the behavior by reliant upon a punishment, sometimes we're reliant on that old system of the extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivations, what we sort of really count on with restorative practices. What does it look like to build a bond with someone? That's that social capital I talked about earlier, building that bond and looking at ways that we can be a part of this community together, something that this is us, not just a you thing and a me thing, and I have to listen to a rule or an expectation. What is us? What does this look like to be community? And we have to allow kids to make mistakes. We can't sort of jump on them and, and say, like, you've done this wrong and really, really push, push, push. We've got to be looking at it every aspect of a mistake when it happens. Sometimes us as the educators, sometimes we cause this. We're the triggering event for something. So if we're the triggering event for a mistake to take place, we start to push with an extrinsic motivation, a reward or a punishment, what ends up happening is the kid starts to disconnect from our relationship, starts to disconnect from the school, and we see the repeated pattern of behaviors continue to happen. So then what do we do? We put in more punishment. We put in more fear-based situations instead of, again, looking at a teaching tool to go through it. So with restorative practices, it's focusing on something as simple as repairing the harm. Where's the harm took place? What does it look like to fix this? And scaffolding those levels of consequence based on deficits and needs. So we're still giving effective consequences, I believe, more responsible consequences through it and removing that fear out of it. What would you add, Luke? Um, I'd say where's the evidence that punishment works? It is easier to get a non-evidence-based punitive idea into a school than a highly evidence relational intervention into a school. And I think there's a really big challenge for leaders in recognizing that. So there are fads in education that swim around and move through schools, but often where's the evidence? And there is a lot of evidence about restorative practice, but schools aren't benign organizations. So you're asking me to put a restorative intervention into a punitive system. It's going to struggle because it's not like it's a Petri dish where I can just pour the new in and watch it grow and develop. So it's about recognizing the legacy or what's happened. And the other thing, having read a couple of um, school behavior policies from the states, they are highly punitive. Like they start with the offender. And I was like, you mean student, right? And they're like, yeah, we mean student. And like the positive environment, you mean community, right? You can see how the language of distance is already there. And then we're going to come along and say, there's this restorative thing, but there are things that are already geared to making it really hard for teachers to have relationships, for educators to educate. And it's not that that's an individual's fault. That's the system itself manifest. Does that make sense? It does. I want to ask you, though, Luke, to continue down this thread of thinking that Nathan had mentioned about being a part of the community from an intrinsic standpoint and them seeing themselves hopefully within that community as well. For students who have experienced 
significant trauma and, and a good friend of ours say, you know, it's hurt people, hurt people, unfortunately. How do you get them to see sometimes their value, not necessarily responding just to like the fears not working for them, but their value in the community when they may have never experienced that before? I think that goes back to Nathan's point about social capital. If you have low social capital, if I don't know anyone in my community and I'm already hurting, I'm not necessarily going to be the first person to reach out at that point. I'm worried about being rejected again. And so there's a question, and I, I love, I'm going to focus on schools as communities. How does the community start to fit around me? And there is a big challenge in that because if I don't regulate with the community, I don't understand its norms, I can be marginalized even more. So there is, it's how do we start to bridge some of those things? And I, we were talking in one school earlier today about a young man who is clearly attention seeking because he's not getting it at home and he doesn't know how to manage his relationships in class with the teachers or with other students. But there's a sliver in the conversation that I heard, which is he wants to be involved. He wants to find a way to support other young people. Now, we could talk about all the things he's not doing, or we could start to say there's a strength and there's an opportunity there. So how do we utilize that? How do we amplify that in the system? And when he gets things wrong, punishing him is going to take him back to his place of fear. Whereas if we can go right, if we can use our restorative language, build empathetic, relation, empathetic relationships, then that's started to coach and tease out that there is the opportunity to have higher quality relationships. Thank you. I want to get, um, so that makes a lot of sense. I want to get granular too about some practices. We have a live audience here. Folks are going to be listening. They're going to want to know steps. Our audience always asks us, okay, what books do I need to read? Obviously we named Hacking School Discipline, but what steps do I need to take to put this in place? So we want to talk about leadership, but I want, you guys said you were okay with hard questions. I want to ask a hard question here. We've seen an uptick of violence in schools, including kids bringing guns to events and to other things in our state and beyond. One of the things that I had a conversation recently about this with a school leader. And I said, why do you think kids are carrying guns or kids? You know, why do you think they're carrying them? And the answer was, well, they're afraid of getting beat up in some cases, beat up in school, but beat up outside of school. And they're afraid of losing a fight and sometimes losing a fight with multiple people. So they carry a gun. That sounds logical to me. If I was afraid in my community, how do you address that? And how do you restore that when there's trauma, such trauma in some of our communities where kids feel the need to carry a gun. What do you say? I know you come right into schools and talk to kids. What do you say to a kid who feels compelled to carry a gun and maybe bring one to school? And I'm going to pass this over to my friend here because, you know, that's a lot of the research that he's done. But I think that we have to really think at all behaviors a form of communication what's the driving force for this situation is it safety is it something else luke has done a significant amount of research and he's found that embarrassment is a big driver of this so i'd love for luke to talk about that first okay thank you nathan of course thank of you. course um so yeah fear is like an obvious candidate emotionally but if we're dealing with like teenage brains being embarrassed is in, it's a social emotion I am now in the crowd and the crowd are aware of me and I feel humiliated in some way. So how do I reclaim power or do I, how do I avoid the fear of social embarrassment? So a lot of people talk about fear, but I'm much more interested in embarrassment because often it gets hidden through like anger 
So the person looks angry because we haven't given them the language of embarrassment. And so helping them recognize that being embarrassed is what you're actually feeling is one thing. And then how do you cope with embarrassment? So you don't feel you need to reclaim power through carrying a weapon because that's just a, a tool of confidence. And so like in the UK, we don't have guns, um, but we do have knife crime. So young people will carry knives to school. And it's, it's the same equivalency. Like I need something that makes me feel confident because the confidence will deal with my fact that if I'm embarrassed or scared, I have something I can hold on to. But what that also tells you is what a failure of communities at that point, if young people have got to that point, what does that mean for us as communities where young people put their confidence in an object rather than people? Yep. And, and I also think that when you think about violence and embarrassment, I also think about the driver of ostracism, and that's a huge push of, of behaviors. When you don't feel like you belong somewhere, you know, what, where else do you go? And I think that when you're thinking about these, the pinnacle of violence with shootings and situations like this, a lot of times they, they don't feel like there's anywhere else to go. There's ostracism that's taken place. Sometimes that ostracism is based on their behavior that they've done for a number of years based on maybe a trauma, a uh, maladaptive coping skills, something else that has happened. But sometimes the, the ostracism starts to happen from us as the adults too. Are we taking intentional steps to make sure that kids feel like they belong? Are we going out of our way when someone makes a mistake, allowing them to fix it and taking steps towards making things right? So they feel like I can go back into the community. Would I try if I didn't get a light at the end of the tunnel? If someone says, dig this hole, Nathan, but they didn't tell me how long, they didn't tell me what I was going to get. They just told me to dig this hole after a while like why am I going to continue to dig this hole and that's sort of what we do to kids you make a mistake you make a mistake you make a mistake we punish 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 but there's no light at the end of the tunnel so then they start to feel ostracized when they start to feel that ostracism they lose that connection so why do I care about my community why do I care about my neighbor why do I care about someone else people have done me wrong and then sometimes with with trauma and toxic stress that starts to manifest in the way that we perceive the world and is the world safe anymore and when we're thinking about violence and we're thinking about weapons, a lot of times those weapons in that situations are based on trying to keep myself safe. I think we also have to be thinking about the, the latter, the, the victims of violence, right? We got to be thinking about after a situation occurs, are we intentional about rebuilding that community? And if we're not, are we missing out on something? I've taken place in a lot of healing circles around after loss of life, after violences. I went into really high stress situations with families, with loved ones all across the country and helped out there. When we think about those things, it breaks our heart, right? You know, it's, it's something that we hope, you know, I hope my son never has to experience that. I hope, you know, our, our kids, our, our families, our loved ones don't have to, but it does happen. What do we do to go out of our way not to glamorize it, glorify it, but really heal, repair, take steps towards making things right, dig in deeper than a surface level. Being a youth worker for eight years before I got into education, I took place in a lot of court hearings. My last three years, I was a clinical case manager in Tippecanoe County in Lafayette, Indiana. I would go through a lot of court hearings and I'd see the huge disconnect between a behavior and the responsibility around that behavior. So what happens when they go to the juvenile detention centers? What happens when they go to the Department of Corrections? Is there repairing? Are we thinking about the victims? Are we thinking about the communities? Because sometimes the communities retaliate afterwards. So then they have to be safety again when they go back into it. And you start to see the recidivism of those different behaviors. So I think we have to be very intentional about offsetting ostracism, really focusing on that belonging, offsetting embarrassment and giving them skills to help with that, as well as really repairing the harm and taking care of our community, especially after tragedy takes place. Nathan, you had started with about digging a hole 
not knowing how long, how far, how wide, not seeing the light. And what we were just talking about is very heavy, making it simpler, just that fourth grade students, we're at the end of April, school only has another month. If we went around, and I don't mean this facetiously, but we asked teachers across the state of Delaware, across the nation, who's that kid? Every teacher could tell you who that kid that they just struggled with all year long. It's one thing when it's in first grade, fourth grade, seventh, and then it continues to manifest as they get older and maybe even more violent. Like what are just some very practical steps? Because a lot of times in my time, I'd have teachers tell me, look, Joe, I just need a break. Yeah, for sure. I just need a break just because, and the kids need a break. So I got 25 kids in this classroom. If you just remove Billy, Sarah, John, for that one day, that just helps me. That just helps me. Nobody's learned, like that kid's not learning anything. We understand that. But what do we do in those situations, especially in the very early grades where we admittedly were not equipped? A lot of times we're recycling the same issues of detention or whatever after school um, incidences of like the really responsive behavior. But what are some just things we can do to help get the student to see the light? But there's such a disruption during the day. I think step one is a lot of self-reflection about the quality of the relationship, first and foremost. I think also we have to remember that our community, our system that we're working with, isn't just the students that we serve, isn't just the families that we serve, it's our educators, right? So when educators are saying, I'm dysregulated right now, you know, I, I love the quote from Dr. Bruce Perry, a dysregulated adult is never going to regulate a dysregulated child. What do we do to take care of our educators? Because if we're not taking care of our educators, how are they going to be taking care of our kids? So I think when we're hearing, I need tapped out for a little bit, I need this, we've got to hear it. You know, we've got to, you know, take care of each other and look at that. I think that we also, when we start to see these situations continue to happen, sometimes I talk to teachers, um, educators, and we're looking for that, you know, that golden key to open up all the doors. If you do this one strategy, you're going to offset every attention-seeking behavior that you have, but there's not nothing out there that does that. <laughs> you know, the biggest one that you have is seeking to understand what's the driver of that behavior, giving teaching consequences through that and really building up the community around it, assessing again, like that quality of that relationship and just diving in deeper into it but again starting with regulation regulation for us before we interact with someone else you know my background's neuroscience so i talk a lot about the regulation of the brain what does it look like that we're focusing on our prefrontal cortex as like the decision maker of the brain, not the amygdala, that fight, flight, and freeze response. If we're in that fight, flight, or freeze response, we're not going to be able to dive in deep enough, look at discipline as a teaching tool, repair the harm, assess the quality of the relationship. We're just going to say, get out of here. We don't want this. You know, So we've got to really focus on the regulation, build this in a scaffold. And if I can jump in there, Nathan, of course, I think there's taking your point, Joe, you've got to be mindful of confirmation bias. So I start looking for the thing that the child does to upset me. And I stop seeing other things that they might be doing that's positive in the class. So then there's a definition of madness, isn't there? Like doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So I think there's, you've got to be careful about what's the stories that are being told about children, particularly at this time of year when everyone's tired. Does it fit my confirmation bias that they are still the troubled child and still causing problems? Or have I found ways to disrupt that? And I think for leaders, a really simple way to look at that is what's the level of referrals coming from that teacher getting them out there out of my class at this time of year that's a warning sign 
that something is going wrong in that relationship. So again, it's about how leaders pick up on some of those signs that things are getting to that every child, you know, that a teacher might be thinking about. Luke, that reminds me of, you know, that some control that we have as leaders, some power about the story that is being told about kids in particular, and, and that we need to transfer that and spread that among teachers, because I hear your confirmation bias. So what you're saying is we then look for the things that we've heard about that kid and that perpetuates that kid's story. Absolutely. So you've talked to kids, hundreds of them in your research. I'm just really curious. What, what do they say? What, what, what do you hear as themes from young people when you talk to them, whether they're in schools or incarcerated? What are some of the themes that we could pick up on and say, here's some big buckets that we need to tackle from a system standpoint? Oh, well, now we're going there. Okay, <laughs> fine. So I think I, I'm going to quote my daughter, who is eight years old, and she has this thing of like, um, nice teachers you want to please and bad teachers you need to please. So she kind of gets it. Um, from that perspective like she knows how she's going to have to manage teachers um, so I think there's recognizing that they are aware of the relationships that are being formed but from my interviews one of the biggest things that came out from 200 young people was am I being treated fairly so we talk about equity um, inclusion and uh, what's the other one diversity diversity and equality but that means nothing to children yes. because it all boils down to fairness. Yes. You know, am I being treated fairly and how are we seem to be treated fairly? So often we tend to think about the outcome. Is it a fair outcome for that child? But what came out from my interviews was, is the process seem to be fair? Do I feel that the conversation is something that I'm included in? And that was quite powerful for me. And I, I think that's partly why I was so attracted to restorative practices, because it meant children actually had a voice in the process as well and that's something that really came out quite strongly from the interviews and I think the second thing was around even if they disliked the teacher did they perceive the teacher the educator the head sorry you mean school administrator I say head teacher <laughs> just um so are they showing that they genuinely care about me so they might be you know firm they might be strict but are they saying they're doing that for my interests or is it just they, we've got to get this done so then we move on? So it's something about the way in which leaders demonstrate a slowing down rather than a speeding up a process. And it's quite hard for children to articulate that. But did they give me time is, is, think, is what they were really trying to say. Does that help? That's not systems related stuff, but that's just like goes back to neighbors quite about being human centric in education. No, I think it's huge. I think it helps. I think it's actually actually I think it's quite practical for people listening uh, assistant principals, deans, people who do student support, counselors, just about anybody in a school to slow down and give students time. I made me reflect about the times when I had a troubled youth and I did invest in, in the time that was necessary to build a relationship and how that was restorative. It's just so hard in schools with sometimes thousands of students to be able to slow down when I know the folks in the room, sometimes you literally are running. So with that though, TJ, that's the system. So why, why does the system create such a pressure that you need to move so fast? Where is that coming from? Because I think everyone says like we want quality relationships, but there is something driving adult behavior that seems to be beyond adult control 
And I would say now you're starting to see the system behind the behaviors of adults. If I think everyone in the room would love to solve the pressure issue. Um, I don't know exactly Luke, where that comes from either. I do know there is an enormous amount of pressure in the state of Delaware around performance. And this may not go over very well among some, not in this room, um, but in many ways, we're a fractured state in terms of how we educate students. And I know not everybody would agree with that, but we have so much choice. And I'm a choice district, 100% choice district. So people could say, well, Joe, that's very hypocritical for you to say that. But I will say, along with choice came immense competition, which I think is healthy, um, but not the way it may have been perceived by the public or utilized by some of those in power. And I think that is a race we're all going for now. And we don't have the clearest metrics to determine if we're making progress or not. So sometimes we're uncertain if we're doing some things well or, or, or not well. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, and it, it was something that came up while you were responding, Luke, is we often ask about like, if you wanted to change the student experience, like what would that be? I'm very curious and, and Nathan would love for you to chime in as well. What experience do they do students need to have? Not what would you like them to have, but knowing this, knowing your work, what do they need to experience to be more successful? Ooh, I'm going to start with you this okay. time. Yeah, of course. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I think to be involved, right? Like we need our students involved and not just like the, the superficial, like, you know, put in the survey, listen to us talk for a minute. Like what's like voice go to empowerment like what's like making changes take place like when we we can hear our students hear their concerns hear where things are at have them problem solve their own problem their own conflicts it helps us out takes burdens off our shoulders and they know best right like it's their stuff it's we're coming into it with our lens our perspective our rich tapestry of life events what does it look like to really amplify their voice into empowerment and getting them really involved with everything down from the let's let's process this book that we just read together into hey our school is struggling with this what should we do and i think that's the number one thing and it's not a big burden on us right we have a lot of stuff on our plate so if we can amplify that voice into policy change into changing systems and into seeing things i mean we talked about today at an elementary school that's having some conflicts at, at recess how to empower the students to be mediators at recess to resolve their own conflicts second graders third graders fourth fifth graders what does it look like to take the burden off our shoulders, empower them with some skills instead of teaching our staff all these awesome professional developments and different skills? Let's empower our students to make those changes. And I think that's really what students need. OK, I'm going to challenge your challenge, Joe. Um, so is it an experience or is it a chain of experiences? So there's no point doing the one off tokenistic thing because people see through that quite quickly. And like, you know, doing professional development, you can have the really charismatic professional development at the start of the year, but two weeks later, everyone's like, oh, you know, it, it was just a bubble and it's mm -hmm. popped. But how do you keep those experiences going? So if we're talking about compassionate leadership or candid leadership, how do we keep the experiences going outside of the bubble of the, the now and start to plan for them for the future? And I think that's where, again, leaders have to think about, it. it's not just the content, of the experience but it's the quality 
And then how do we chain that together? That becomes really powerful for change. I love that chain of experiences. The chain of experiences and not just the content of the experience, but the quality of it. I mean, that that's a major takeaway. I also think there's a call to action there. We got to get every kid involved. 100% of our students need to be in after school activities, sports, the things that do empower them in school so that they feel that sense of belonging. This place belongs to me. I'm part of a team. I'm part of the the school in a way that means something to me. I think but beyond academics, it's something that we've worked with schools on, um, Joe and I, in terms of the building blocks of positive relationships in schools. But we need to do more inventories and checklists of what kids are are, are doing uh, that's connected to school. So it's a major call to action. I was thinking, TJ, the dot activity just very practical. I'm not sure how many people are familiar with that, but you pretty much put every student's name on chart paper, and then you can put dots next to those where the adults have relationships with them. And TJ and I have worked with schools. And when it comes down to it, the students who typically are exhibiting some of the the behaviors you don't want have no dots next to their names. There's no connectivity. There's no positive experience. Unfortunately, school has become more of a reminder of what they can't do and what they're not a part of versus what they can do or that community we started off talking about. And I also think it's about connecting our educators to one another too. Do you know the educator across the hall from you? Do you know everyone that's in your building? Do you have bonds with them? Do you know that their kid's going off to college just like your kid's going off to college? You guys both have the same type of dog, like stuff like that, that I do like basic level stuff. I do circles all the time with staff and they find stuff out about each other. They had no idea. So we're trying to focus on culture and focus on the kids feeling like they belong. Do the educators feel like they belong in the building? Because if they don't, how are they going to be able to teach that to our students? So really focusing on culture is a huge thing. And culture is not a surface level, catchy, boom, boom, boom. It's really looking at the history of a building, looking at the history of the relationships. I love how Luke talks about the quality of those relationships too. What does it look like to ingrain that in something? So then it's a systems approach. I have a really rough day at school. You know, me as a, let's say I was a teacher in a classroom because my friend Luke over here is just, you know, paper cut behavior every single day, not big enough for me to call a referral, but like, man, I'm just, I wish I got a break from Luke for a little bit. Like, right. Like I'm, I'm thinking this, but what do I rely on during those times? Cause if not, we end up seeing our teachers say, I don't want to be here. Like, you know, this is stressful or, or, or get dysregulated over situations. So we've got to build up that quality of relationships, starting with our educators. So then they can bring it into that quality of relationships with each other, with our students too. I think there's a cycle there, though. I mean, I think if we can get educators involved in the school in a way that they feel connected, something that they're passionate about, I'm thinking like things like girls on the run and some extra uh, uh, after school activities that adults may find themselves falling in love with, and then getting kids there. It's a cycle of belonging for both the adults and the kids. And it really is beyond the classroom so that we can be successful in the classroom. So much of it happens outside of those four walls of learning math and ELA and even the related disciplines. I want to ask a question. We're going to wrap up here in a minute. Um, I want to ask a question um, about resources, people to follow, places to go. We're going to link to your book. We're going to give books away. Uh, we're going to link to, to Luke's work, to your work, Nathan, to High Five. But resources, books to read, people to follow. Our our listeners love that and they're going to gravitate right to it. What do you say? Look, I'll let you start. 
Um, I was going to go with like, there are resources in school. So just simple question, like what does peace mean? And just start exploring together. So I think it's quite fun to see how people challenge and agree. And that can, like some of the, from my own research, some of the best ideas actually came from educators talking to each other for the first time about what could we do and they didn't realize that there was an internal resource so I think there is sometimes there's a bit of a danger that you're always looking out and you don't necessarily recognize that there's things that are in that just need to be interconnected and you can create something quite unique because you know your school and you know what's going to work for your community yeah and I, I think with tangible resources too, there's a lot of experts out there, you know, so I think that there's a lot of people that you can dive behind and check out. Um, I like Dr. Lori Desitel's work very much. I think that she really dives into the, the deep neuroscience of connection and discipline, ties that in with synergies. I think her work is amazing. Um, Dr. Jason Arday out of Cambridge University, I think his work is very cutting edge around equity and what does this look like on a systemic type level. Um, so I think those are two really great starting points that I would recommend. Luke's research is amazing. That's why we became friends on Twitter. And now I'm honored to work with him. Um, you know, really, really awesome stuff that he's came across, really diving into what is violence, what does it look like around bullying and offsetting that type of work too. Um, our website is highfive.school. We try to put as much research on there as well um, and work. We want to be a very um, evidence-based company. So that's what we really drive for. The only thing I was going to just say real practically, I just have seen this and experienced, Luke, just to emphasize what you just said about internal. One thing we've done in our high schools is all the counselors are basically in a pod together. And in other high schools, I've worked in four different high schools and I'm high school only district, as everyone in this room knows. That has become a game changer because of the internal dialogue. Other high schools I worked at, the administrator, the counselor, and the advisor were the team. In the schools now in Newcastle County Votech, the counselors are the hub. And just the work that they kind of like really can get around is incredible. They're, they're experts within their own world and just sharing those ideas. We've seen a huge difference with our students. That's great. Nathan and Luke, this has been fantastic. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your expertise. We want to thank you for joining us today, but we want to end with this. Is there anything else, question we didn't ask, something that you want to share, a request of the audience? Is there anything else that you would like to uh, to say today before we end? I mean, I, I think that sometimes we talk about a lot of complex issues, right? You know, and again, I would love to get some audience questions too. We have some time for that. I think we talk about a lot of complex issues. I think when we go back to the basics, do we make kids and educators feel like they belong? Do we allow mistakes to happen? And what does peace look like at our school? We all want peaceful schools. We want a sense of belonging. I think the tangible strategies will help us get there. But I think that's the main two focuses that I have. And just to echo Nathan's point, because that started at the beginning, what, what was it? Discipline and restorative justice. These are how questions to achieve the why, because yes, we want yes. peaceful communities. Mm -hmm. So anything that gets you towards peaceful communities, I'm all in favor of. Yeah. It's a great place to end. Again, this has been absolutely fantastic. I remind listeners that you heard it here on Focus Ed. Nathan Maynard and Luke Roberts, everyone. How about a virtual and live round of applause from our audience?
we are going to take some questions from the live audience today, which will be placed at the back end of the podcast for material for anyone who wants to continue listening. And we always say, don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read and more, plus the show notes from this show and all the links. We'll be back soon with another episode, another season, in fact, of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. Hey, leaders, before you go, one more announcement. We now have available for you our candid and compassionate feedback masterclass. Really, because of high demand, we are thrilled to offer this. This is a course that we run live and in person all the time, and leaders love it. They learn to give feedback with skills that they can use right away, including better praise to lift and celebrate your team. It's now available in a virtual online format that you can take on your own, self-paced, from the comfort of your office or home. Here's what you'll get. There are 11 lessons with a focus on nine candor cancellations that we wrote in our Candid and Compassionate Feedback book. These are mistakes that leaders make that we don't want you to make anymore. We'll teach you models so that your feedback is meaningful and we'll give you tools necessary to build the culture that you always wanted. Trust us, without these critical skills, you're not capitalizing on your own capacity to lead better and grow faster. Go to the site, theschoolhouse302.com, click on shop courses, add this course to your cart and start learning today. So this is related, this question is related to something that Luke said about our com confirmation bias, that we look for the, the things that are embedded in the story that we tell about kids. I, I actually have a little bit of an opinion on this question as well, but we'll, we'll start with Luke. How can we end the labels, quote unquote, on students that are created when teachers discuss students at the end of the year? These labels already create bias right at the start, which can create a cycle or pattern of behaviors to repeat all over again the next school year. So I'm thinking fourth grade teachers in a faculty lounge, well-meaning people saying, wait till you have that Nathan Maynard next year. He Why? throws chairs. <laughs> um, so let's start with Luke. How do we get rid of those labels and how do we address that uh, behavior? You guys asked for the hard it questions. Here they come. Nathan asked for the hard questions. <laughs> um, I think... So you hear it, you hear it in like, you know, he's just like his brother and he was two years above, you know? And so it's about when's the moment of challenge to that? 
as school leaders. So that's already teeing you up for confirmation bias. So now I know what to look for, the behaviours that his older brother had. So I stopped seeing that person, that child, as an individual, but I now treat them as a comparator. Mm. So again, it's about going, okay, they come from the same family, but actually what makes them different as well? So the ability to turn the question on its head quickly, go, okay, I see the similarity, now tell me the difference. Because that's where the narrative creeps in. Yeah. And so you're asking us to do something that's in our equity standards that Joe and I teach about actually in this program, which is to confront and alter. And I'll add to, to what you said is in, and, and maybe underscore just the need that when we hear these things, even if it's secondhand, we have to address it and say, even asking folks, please don't Please don't label students in that way. Kids grow a lot over the summer. We're going to have new expectations when the school year starts. I mean, one thing that we did put a stop to when I was a principal was we weren't collecting, we were collecting evidence and we were collecting information, but it wasn't about student behavior in terms of making decisions about the next year's schedule. So we had these like cards that we took from fifth incoming you know outgoing fifth graders into sixth grade we just stopped looking at that um some people at the time thought that that was uh, a disadvantage but i saw it as an incredible advantage when we hid some of the factors about kids who were going to grow a ton mm -hmm. over the summer yeah and I, and I also think that we've got to be mindful of how we perceive information when it comes in especially around labels specifically you know our brain is set up in a way that we receive logical information and emotional information right so like when we do it if we want to make a good wise decision it's sort of this overlap of a little bit of the both so if we're seeing an emotional reaction an emotional label emotional situation what's the logic behind it he's going to be like his brother that's two years older but what's the factual things that's taking place in the classroom and what does it look like to be you know not focus on the actual labeling of it but what's success look like what what's a you know ways that we can look about a solution together and i think if you're solution focused you can perceive that information a little bit differently as well excellent so I'll go with the next question. What is the replacement behavior when dealing with students who have outbursts from feeling embarrassed? I'll continue. This is more the, the narrative around it. Teaching students pride and self-worth is difficult when you have so many students who are easily offended and lack the ability to see things from other perspectives that lead to fights with peers or arguments, even with staff over the smallest issues. So the question then is, what is the replacement behavior when dealing with those students? You want me to start? You go. Okay. So um, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I think that when you're thinking about a replacement behavior, the embarrassment is, again, like the tip of the iceberg, right? That's what we're seeing before the behavior manifests. What is underneath that embarrassment? I think a lot of times the replacement behavior for me is a low self-esteem. So what's empowerment look like to offset that embarrassment? If I'm trying to do something to make myself feel better because I start to get embarrassed often, what can I do to empower that? I think leadership. I think sometimes tasking them out to do different tasks to really empower around you know ways that we communicate with each other. So there's good social emotional learning skills involved with that too. So I think it's a lot of times for my replacement, a lot about empowerment. I, I'm not sure I want to replace it. Um, I want to name it because I don't think we do. Like if you think about a teacher meeting where someone's embarrassed, everyone just wants to get out of there as quickly as possible, don't they? 
but no one actually says like to that person like that was a really embarrassing moment or they'll do it like in a quiet you know side corner rather than going do we want meetings where people feel embarrassed like label the behavior number one so everyone knows it's not fear and it's not anger that's crucial and i think in a world of social media it makes children much more heightened to even if it's not going to happen in the real world is it now on a whatsapp group with people putting smiley faces so they are much more aware of online implications for embarrassment as well and the key thing i think is is about that does that moment doesn't have to define you and we can therefore look at ways in which to cope with that but firstly let's label it for what it is don't let anger or fear be the secondary emotions that start to drive your behavior yes you're embarrassed what is it that you need to do to potentially take control and know that that moment doesn't necessarily mean like for you know the teenage brain that could be like this moment is going to last forever for sure. but the adult brain goes it's five minutes uh -huh. and everyone will have forgotten about it but you felt it so intensely then that's what you're still holding on to yeah it's so tough to talk a teenager into a rational thought when they're in that type of position um here's one that i think is is tough how do you handle discipline concerns when you have a code of conduct at, that has a tiered approach to restorative practices and includes the victims uh, you know we're talking about examples like bullying and so forth um and i'll kind of rephrase it a little bit to say how do you do restorative practices when we have a limited system where it doesn't quite exist the way it should? You want to start out with them? Okay, I will start with that. So having looked at a couple recently, it's like I can see someone's just cut and pasted like step two, use a restorative conversation. Step three, use a restorative conversation. All the way up to step eight, use a restorative. It's like there's no differentiation in the restorative approaches that are being used. So you can see someone's just cut and pasted. Now it can go two ways. You can go, I've tried my restorative conversation at step two it doesn't work give up or you can take it much more interpretively and go if they want a restorative conversation what's the quality of those conversations that now need to happen but that's where you do need to have skilled practitioners being able to engage at that level and I think there is a real danger that there's this kind of like you know a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing so in like the UK my sister's school for example some psychologists this isn't smearing psychologist she is a psychologist I will caveat with that they kind of came in and said a restorative approach means you have to say sorry to the kids and so of course the teaching body just went wild They're like what do you mean we have to say sorry for everything that and so there's a total misinterpretation so even the quality of the information about what restorative truly is is limited so simply putting in the behavior policy a restorative conversation when there's no guidance, no support, no training, no role modeling, like, well, why would you bother doing that kind of thing? So I think there is something about how do we ensure that there's quality practice in there and that the behavior policy does actually reflect that quality of practice rather than somebody's written it over here, hoping somebody over here is going to do it. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, I, I'd like to talk about behaviors like taking a rock and dropping into a body of water. When that rock hits that body of water, ripples occur. That's the impact of that rock hitting the water. Those ripples are stakeholders that are impacted around that different behavior. Sometimes the stakeholder is another student. Sometimes it's the educator. Sometimes it's the family. Sometimes it's everyone above. You know, what does it look like to tear the consequences based on those stakeholders? So maybe at first we repair the harm with 
one stakeholder, maybe just the educator, then maybe we repair the harm or fix it or have a mediation with the family, bring them into it. Maybe then it's the rest of the classroom. So I think tiering levels of consequences that are teaching consequences, looking at skill gaps that may exist as well, and really building that up helps the students understand that you have to have a tiered approach. If you give the same consequence over and over and over again, is that really teaching? Or is that going to turn into a maladaptive process where I can do anything that I want and I continue to get my way? I see a lot of, you know, like Luke was saying, like the, we do a restorative conversation, a restorative conversation, a restorative conversation, but there's no consequences involved with it. So then what ends up happening is the teachers say, get this restorative stuff away from me. Like, you know, it's a change in behavior and the students say, huh, this is pretty nice. I can just apologize and own it and go through it, but there's no logical side of it. There's no fixing things. There's no taking steps and really focusing on what took place, how to repair the harm and, and doing logical consequences. At my high school, when I was a school administrator, after a second physical altercation would take place, those students were assigned in our aggression replacement training. That's our anger management course. They did that every Tuesday and Thursday for two months during their lunchtime with a counselor that was trained in this, that was building up the skills. It wasn't a punitive consequence saying, I'm taking away your lunch for two months. It's looking and saying, hey, we're noticing that these triggers are going into, you're not able to use these coping skills. So we started to do logical consequences that way and that offset the behavior. You have a student that you know does damage in the building. What does it look like to repair the harm and fix it maybe with community service? You know, Looking at things in a deeper way and tiering those levels of consequences opens up that accountability. One gap that I see happening in schools sometimes though is not good tracking systems around what this looks like. So sometimes one great disciplinarian does one thing, one other great disciplinarian does another things, but then they're the same things and the students start to play the system a little bit. So tracking that with good consistent communication really helps offset that as well. I think this one goes perfectly as a follow-up because it still deals with um, what those consequences look like. And I appreciate both of you mentioning consequences several times because too often, I think people think that when we say restorative practices, it's a void of consequences. When in fact, very often you're confronting that stakeholder, as you said, which might be harder it is. than just going home for a day. The question is, what is your recommendation for how to balance this struggle between building a school community with restorative practices when society will say here a school community as a whole demands punitive actions? And I, I, I think I would challenge the, the punitive action component. I think it means we need consequences for situations, right? I think that the punitive actions like can be a consequence, but again, there's other types of consequences that you can build up. I think when you do wrong in, in society, what does it look like to fix things, to, to make amends, to repair the harm and go through it? I think a lot of the revamping in the justice system, you know, you can see that that's a lot better approach to change that recidivism than a punitive situation that really pushes through. So we've got to be looking at ways to really offset that, looking at consequences to really tear those up and focusing on that logical side of things can help educators a lot more yeah I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with that question just because if you follow the logic we're saying we want to build a community by removing people from the community protect the community oh, would, but, Luke, that's how i would say that's okay. partly the mindset of some individuals and and i don't can't speak for you know the nation I speak for our communities here but that's a little bit what i was mentioning earlier around the politicization of some of this and that we're no longer investing in the offender we're protecting the community from the offender 
Okay, so like the British tried this like 200 years ago with the bloody code, <laughs> where we pretty much killed anyone <laughs> for every crime, and it didn't stop crime. So like we have evidence. So mm. again, when you're protecting the community, what are you protecting them from? Because you're not protecting them from recidivism. So again, I go back to the initial question, how do you build community by removing people from community? And I think to one degree, even in my own district, we've just tried to peel this back a little bit and not confront this with some of the more difficult issues, someone distributing drugs in schools, things like that. We just focused on attendance at first. So if a student's not attending and we want them to attend, we're not going to just call home and yell at them for not attending. Like something's going on where they no longer see school as something viable for them for whatever reason. And so what worked, one of our schools attendance dropped dramatically and we went old school and knocked on doors and not with just anyone. It was with the counselor and some others. It was a team, two or three. It took a lot of time, um, but at least we were able to have a conversation. That's all we were hoping for. Cause after a while, especially at the high school level, they just don't have to pick up the phone, you know, and if they're over 16, you lost them. So it's, it's a way that you hopefully can try to build that community. So yeah, it's a great point, Luke. I think we hear you loud and clear. Um, I have one more here and I think Joe has one more question. This question is um, something that actually you and I've texted about before in some work that, that we've shared. At what point is it okay for students to just not restore? Like, is there a student voice component of maybe we're going to ignore this one or we're not going to restore this behavior? Would you say we got we to gotta get to restoration in every case? I, I think that we need to get to a level of restoration in every case. I think that if there's no social capital built, why, what are you going to restore? You know, if I'm walking through, you know, a store and, you know, someone bumps me and says, wow, that really hurt my feelings that you bumped me. And I don't even know who this person is. They're going to look at me like I'm, you know, crazy, you know, and I think that sometimes we try to restore that type of stuff and tell the students to repair the harm, fix things when they've never been part of that community at all. So maybe restoration looks like not maybe with that person that did that offense, but maybe at something that's deeper with our community and repairing that a little bit, you know, even when someone's not ready to have a mediation, they're not ready to resolve something that they took place. You can still have someone, someone sit in there by proxy, talk about how they would feel in that situation. And you can fix that. Sometimes when the person that did the offense, isn't ready to do it, you can do the opposite. You can have someone work with the person that was, you know, had the situation happen to them. So I think some level of restoration is needed. Maybe it's not for the person that did the offense. Maybe it's not person that, that was a, based those stakeholders that were impacted maybe it's based on the community you know sometimes suspensions are needed in schools right joe i mean there's situations that take place where there's big safety concerns that happen but what's that bringing them back into the mix or are we going to let them get ostracized to a point where you know three years down the road what's happening what's going on with them so we have to really take steps towards re restoration i believe in every step but maybe it doesn't involve every stakeholder and just to, i if i've answered the question right there's also a question in there around participation. So calling a out of school suspension meeting, a restorative meeting does not make it restorative. Mm -hmm. So why would the child participate? You know, what are you trying to restore? And this is one of the things that came out in my own research that punitive systems over time 
will start to co-opt restorative language. So you still end up with punitive outcomes, but we now have the language of, well, how do you feel about being out of school, Nathan? Yeah. You know, it's not really a restorative <laughs> question sure. at all. But so why in that situation, the child has no option but to become passive? Because in, in this the case study that I was doing, the teachers were going, well, if they don't participate today, we'll do it all again tomorrow. Mm. We're back to a definition of madness. That's That's my biggest fear, actually, with any practice whether it be restorative justice or professional learning communities, that we normalize the language, but the system doesn't change. It's it's my biggest fear um, because the system is so strong. It it does what it's always done and it does it well. And so we can normalize the language without normalizing the uh, practices Absolutely. and the outcomes. It's, there's names for it, perceptual illusion, uh, the curse of knowledge, the more we understand something, the more we assume others do when they don't. Perceptual illusion is the illusion that we're doing something, that we're not really doing it with precision or accuracy. I worry about that with restorative practices. No, you're absolutely right, TJ. We talked about this quite a bit with Carol Dweck's work and mindset. It just seemed after a few years, everybody was like hanging up growth mindset posters. It's like, that's great. But then you didn't hear it in the actual language with the students in other facets. And I do, I just think it becomes normalized. And to your point, Nathan, it becomes part of that vernacular and Luke, and then it ultimately isn't doing anything restorative mm -hmm. whatsoever. And I think that's when we first caught on to that TJ with, with mindset. We're like, I'm not sure people actually read the book you know, after a while. Um, so this one we've hit on, um, but if there's a, a twist to this answer, it just deals with um, buy-in, this one specifically old school teachers, um, you know, and I, I think even some new teachers, I, I would extend that beyond just some old school um, teachers, but, and and we've definitely touched on this in a couple of different ways, but how do you get people to start buying in the restorative? You want to go first it uh, doesn't matter. Okay. Um, I think I, I'm going to flip it the other way. Often people think about the people who are never going to buy in and how you change them. So that takes up a lot of time and energy, convincing people who are never going to be changed. So I always kind of go with, there's going to be a certain group of people who will just go with you, whatever, like they like the new, like let's just get going kind of thing. But the loudest or most resistant people can suck up a lot of leaders' time worrying about how do we convince, you know, and you've probably got someone in mind, like, how do we convince that group? Whereas all you need is like 51% of an organization to create culture change. So I'm not really interested in the whole anymore. And what I would say to leaders is like, yes, you might need to have conversations with those people who aren't going to buy them, but don't get so fixated on them. You forget about the 51%. And I think when you're thinking about the other 49%, you know, and push them through, you know, there's still ways to chip away at that i think that cognitive dissonance is the best way to go through we all want belonging we all want peaceful classrooms how do we get there and if the old way is not working and you have a fixed disposition about the old way or this is how i was raised and look i'm successful kids are very different technology has changed a lot of things even with stuff like open ai and chat gpt kids are going to learn so much differently around environment and there's a lot of like keyboard warriors out there they can say anything and everything they want to online and there's no accountability, there's no empathy through it. So we have to be thinking about ways to develop cognitive dissonance with those fixed dispositions. You want peace, you want belonging, but yet you're doing the old school approach because it worked for you. What does that look like now with technology, the way that kids aren't 
responding to fear-based situations as much and really challenging that in that way. I think it's an excellent point. Um, the only thing I would add to that, because we're hiring so often, also make this a, a substantial part of your hiring practices, asking questions that get into the teacher's mindset. We also have more and more teachers moving from building to building than we ever have and start having those conversations around what are their philosophy around like working with kids, especially difficult kids, and not just like, hey, would you be willing to? Because the answer is always yes, right? It's how, how did you, how would you? We have found that to also be highly effective because when you really start thinking of your turnover, the person you're so worried about, they may be gone in two years. This has been fantastic. How about another round of applause for Nathan and Luke? Yeah. Yeah.